The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by our good friends at the Dune Science Group, specializing in dune restoration, protection, and builders of the toughest, most long-lasting dune walkovers on the market. And if you're in the southeast region of the American shoreline, come on out to the Fernandina Beach City Golf Course on Tuesday, February 18th for a special informational happy hour featuring a 20-foot fiberglass dune walkover section. I have on the phone with me right now Frank Hopf, Director of Science at the Dune Science Group, to tell us more about the company and the event. Thanks, Tyler. Um, yes, I moved here to Fernandina Beach about four years ago uh, after uh, teaching at Texas A&M for a couple of years and teaching coastal geomorphology and getting my PhD there. And I, I realized that I was, after a few months of lying on the beach and the golf courses, that I was sort of wasting my years of study and research on aeolian geomorphology. And I had dunes out there that were, were uh, needing some uh, love and attention. So I started doing some educational programs for, for my neighbors and friends in the community. And out of that, once people realized how important the dunes are and how easy they are to, uh, to love and maintain and what, what all they provide, they were quite anxious to figure out how they could could uh, help grow their dunes, help protect their dunes, and, and take care of things. And I realized they really, you know, it's a little more complex than than uh, someone wants to take on. Like it's not quite like planting a lawn. So I thought I'd form a low company to uh, to uh, help some of my neighbors and friends do just that. Uh, but um, along the way, I was doing some work uh, free for the city, and uh, the city had to shut down a couple of dune walkovers about 12 of them in the height of the, the tur spring tourist season last year. And so one of the uh, folks came to me and said, Frank, can you find us a better way to, to build these walkovers? These wooden ones just deteriorate too quickly, require too much maintenance, and uh, they're just not working for us. So I developed a little research project comparing all the other alternatives to wood that were available. And quite frankly, from that, uh, we found that the molded fiberglass, uh, open molded fiberglass walkover was the uh, was the best opportunity from cost standpoint, and particularly from from its uh, ability to uh, to look like real wood and imitate real wood in many ways, um, but last that way for a long time. So uh, from that we ended up, uh, I ended up in a joint venture with the uh, manufacturers of of the fiberglass walkover. And we formed just last month, the Dune Science Group to 
provide the beach restoration work, beach protection work, and to help uh, spread the use of these superior walkovers. Um, so to introduce our company and uh, our services, we decided to have a little kickoff gathering, a little party, happy hour, and invited some of the beachfront property owners, uh, beachfront property managers, some of the builders and architects who work on the beachfront here in, in Fernandina. But we'd love to expand it and some of the community um, access managers, beach access managers from the city and the county. But we'd also like to expand it to other coastal engineering and science-based firms that do similar work up and down the coast and have them, them join us and, and see this product. Um, of course, the advantages of it, we can, we can go much longer stands because the weight ratio of fiberglass compared to, uh, to strength weight, strength ratio to weight of fiberglass is superior to not only wood, but even steel. And so we have much longer spans. We go 30 feet as a typical span. So less interference in the dune itself. Uh, the long life of the fiberglass is, is, uh, totally untested because the fiberglass has been around for about 50 years, but not much of it is deteriorated yet that we can tell, know of. And it, it is also so very realistic. Uh, the We can form almost any texture of wood, make it in any color, and the good news is that it will look like that 20 years down the road with, with minimal amount of maintenance. And that's one of the real highlights of us having the 20-foot uh, by five foot wide walkover section that uh, people can look at uh, if they come come to our little little party. So I'd love to have everyone come and uh, learn a little bit, I hope, and uh, have a good time. Thanks for that introduction to the Dune Science Group, Frank. And again, for our listeners, the informational happy hour with the Dune Science Group will be on Tuesday, February 18th at the Fernandina Beach City Golf Course at 2800 Bill Melton Road, in Fernandina Beach, Florida, just off the A1A. Hope to see y'all there. Hey, this is Erica Sears, the host of Big Tourism, one of American Shoreline Podcast Network's newest shows. This show will provide an opportunity to explore the complex world of coastal tourism by showcasing examples of non-traditional partnerships, forward-thinking destination management, and testimonies from coastal communities adapting to tourism trends. I'm really excited about starting this podcast in this time because it's extremely relevant. Today, when you think of tourism, most people think of over-tourism and big crowded beaches. In fact, I looked it up today over tourism on Google just to see what was going on in the world. And here were some of the top headlines. Is Venice at war with itself? Destinations have vowed to fight back against over-tourism in 2020. My favorite was how the village that inspired Frozen is dealing with over-tourism. And I get that this is relevant and it should be because over-tourism has had a lot of negative impacts. But something that hasn't had a lot of light is destination management, and that's where I come in. Destination management is my current role with the Oregon Coast Visitors Association. We manage regional projects in partnership with local stakeholders and communities along 363 miles of Oregon's coastline. Projects such as workforce training, regional mountain bike trail systems, and other outdoor recreation 
public art trails, stewardship messaging, and really the list goes on and on. So today, I'm really excited to get this podcast started and to do so with my friend and colleague, Andrew Grossman, who is the, let's see, I'll let you say your own job title. (laughs) It used to be Destination Management Specialist and has recently changed. So I will let him introduce himself and talk a little bit about Travel Oregon, the organization he works for, and really what what focus you guys have right now on destination management and how your role plays into that. So thanks for being here, Andrew. Yeah, cool. Thanks, Erica, and thanks for um, letting me join your first podcast. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Yeah, so my my current title is now Destination Development Manager. Um, You're right, it was Destination Management Specialist before, but I don't think Travel Oregon wanted me me to manage management, so they (laughs) turned me back into a Destination (laughs) Development Manager. Um, But Travel Oregon is the... the doing business as name for the Oregon Tourism Commission. Um, we were officially really enacted in 2003 with the passage of what is now a 1.8% transient lodging tax on all night stays in Oregon. Um, like most um, destination marketing organizations, so there's the traditional definition of what the M and DMO stands for is marketing. Um, we have a global sales team that does international travel trade. We've got a global marketing team that does a lot of our consumer marketing. We've got an operations team that manages you know, payroll and accounting. And we have a destination development team that really looks at um, a combination of managing stakeholder engagement and also managing visitor experience um, on behalf of the state of Oregon. Is that, would you say that the way that the entity that Travel Oregon is, is that something that most states in the United States have? Is like a very common entity or is it pretty unusual? Yeah, so I, I don't know the entire numbers, but I would say that near all of the states within the United States have a state tourism board, which is effectively what Travel Oregon is. Um, some states do not. For example, Washington State to our north here in Oregon does not have a um, state tourism office, although it's kind of growing at the moment. Uh, they should have one come online, I think, pretty soon. Uh, but yeah, it's really common to have an, an agency that markets the state. Um, I think what's what's less common is to have an agency that markets the state have a focus on stakeholder engagement and managing visitor experience like what um, my team does for Travel Oregon as part of the destination development team. Cool. And what does Travel Oregon consider to be a stakeholder? It's a great question. I think it's 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 evolving. And I think if you look at it from a kind of like bare bones, simple, simple aspect. You know, we are funded through that 1.8% transient lodging tax, which is collected by um, entities that sell night stays in Oregon. So anything from a you know state park that has a campground pays this tax, but also you know, the hotels here in Portland pay this tax. Um, you know, I think by a very literal definition, you can look at those hotels as our taxpayers and therefore there are immediate stakeholders, but I think that it's pretty easy to think that that's a pretty limited definition because people aren't coming to a destination specifically to go to a hotel. They're going to that destination to experience its tourism product. So then you start to look at um, that net of who our stakeholders are expand out to tourism-related businesses. So it could be a tour operator, a transportation provider, food and beverage, um, even you know land management agencies. I think. What we're starting to see is that you know the definition of stakeholders emerging to an even broader concept, where you look at you know um, transportation providers. It could be mm-hmm. you know TriMet in Portland is certainly a stakeholder for Portland's tourism product. So, you know I think we're in the process of kind of broadening the scope to 
everyone in a lot of different ways. If you're a resident of Oregon, you're a stakeholder for us. Um, if you come to Oregon to travel, you're a stakeholder to us. So, you know, it's a pretty broad, broad definition these days. Yeah, I think it's a question I receive a lot um, with my work on the Oregon coast is we talk about our stakeholders so much and how we develop two-year plans. And it's really important that our plan is aligned with what our stakeholders want. And people are always like, well, who is your stakeholder? And actually, I think the shorter list would be who isn't our stakeholder, and it would still be really hard to find a name to put on it. Um, a big, an example that people use a lot is even the person that works at the gas station mm-hmm. when you're, you know, your car drives up and you say, hey, what is there to do here in, in Tillamook? Uh, you wouldn't want that gas station tenant to say, oh, nothing, you should just keep driving. So stakeholders is really, really a big definition in Oregon, and I would assume that most other states also have similar definitions of stakeholders, but it changes depending on kind of what your, your makeup is. You know, everything's a little bit different state to state. So yeah, that's exciting. Uh, Andrew and I work on a number of projects because I work for the entity that is um, in charge of managing the Oregon coast, but the state of Oregon, which, you know, for those of you that don't have a map in front of you, or it's been a while since you've had a a geography class, um, is basically the shape of a square and our entire state has been divided up into seven tourism regions. And I know there's a department at Travel Oregon that works within these different regions to implement statewide programs, and that's not your department. But just from your point of view, um, the coastal region, what do you think makes the coast special, or what needs do you see arising from the coast a lot more than you do from you know the desert eastern Oregon or the high mountains of central Oregon? Is there something that really speaks to you about the Oregon coast when it comes to needs and challenges and programs going on? Yeah, I think there's probably kind of two big things that pop up to me based on my experience in working in this space for in, in partnership with your organization in, in particular on the coast is that, you know, a lot of Oregon or more than 50% of Oregon is public land, um, with the majority of that being kind of BLM and forest service land. So, you know, anything that we do in, in all regions of the state, you know, have been really in, are intrinsically linked to our federal and state land management agencies. On the coast in particular, you see what is really a patchwork quilt of land management agencies along the entire 363 miles of the coast that you mentioned that you guys manage. Um, that is an opportunity and also a challenge at the same time. So, you know, not only do you have to work with, you know, one land management agency, you've got to work with potentially five that could be within a you know, 15 minute radius of each other. So, you know, that's that's a really big piece that is, again, opportunity and a challenge. Um, I think another really big piece is, you know, the, the coast by by its nature is a pretty fragile ecosystem. So it's not, you know, as as stable of an environment as I think we see in other parts of the state. So it's more susceptible or vulnerable to um, visitor impacts or public safety related to that. Yeah, I agree. And I think just going back to the amount of land agency partners we have, you know, in Oregon, I think in a lot of tourism things, we have acronym SOUP. And especially on the Oregon coast, we have Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, U.S. Forest Service, OP, you know, state parks, our state departments. Um, we have all these agencies working together. And one really cool example of how they're all working together, including the state, it's a priority project for our governor, Kate Brown, is the Oregon Coast Trail, mm-hmm. which is really this destination development project, um, a hiking trail that goes all the way from our border with Washington south to our border with California. Um, and it's exciting to see how it does go through all those different agencies, territories, and it also affects all the communities. And that's another example of where we see all of these stakeholders coming together. 
Um, so it'll be exciting to see that come online. And um, the current work is around fixing some of the gaps because, like you were saying, in a fragile ecosystem, some some of the pieces of that trail have fallen into the ocean. So it is a lot of work, and it definitely requires all these different stakeholders, but really non-tourism stakeholders to work together to kind of fix and provide funding for some of those gaps. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Um, Andrew and I are both just avid travelers. We both love traveling and it's great catching up with him and comparing some of our different travel stories. Um, I was going to ask you about some of your previous travels and most recently, I think it was your most recent trip was the last spring, you got to go to the Faroe Islands and you found out a couple months before you left that the plans were going to change a little bit onto how you were going to travel there and why. So would you mind explaining that story a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So um, I love hot springs, and <laughs> who doesn't? I right? only I only choose to invest in personal travel if it's connected to a hot spring. All right. Um, Are there any hot springs in Oregon? Uh, there's quite a few hot springs in Oregon. None on the Oregon coast, though. None on the Oregon coast. There is one in Vancouver Island. Oh, okay. To our you know Canadian friends to the north, but <laughs> none on the Oregon coast. But yeah, so I've I've because of that. And my lack of interest in going to warm destinations, um, I've been really interested in traveling to kind of non-tropical islands near the poles that have hot springs. And that's led me to the North Atlantic. So um, my first trip out there was in 2014, two weeks in Iceland. I came back in 2016 for two weeks in the Azores. And then I basically by default found the Faroe Islands as another archipelago Mm -hmm. that had a hot spring, although it's an <laughs> arguable hot spring. There was um, so you figured out how to hot spring and decided bingo, this is it, or you were like, oh, Faroe Islands, that looks interesting, and bingo, bonus. It, yeah, there there's a, a there's a warm spring that is <laughs> a, a, a warmish that is spring. a tepid sixty two degrees constant, <laughs> which is in my by my definition a hot spring. So All right, you'll take it. You'll I touched it. it. It allowed me to go to the Faroe Islands, but. Yeah, so I, I'd had this trip planned, and then um, the vice president on our marketing team, uh, a few months before I left, sent out what effectively was um, a PR campaign by um, Visit Faroe Islands, which was an entity I wasn't really that familiar with. But again, just like at most states in the U.S. have a state tourism board, the Faroe Islands also have a state you know, mm-hmm. tourism board, country tourism board. Um, for those who don't know, Faroe Islands are an autonomous region of Denmark, so it's similar to kind of the... Um, that so um, they had sent out and a, a PR campaign that was that the Faroe Islands were closed for three days in April which is not when I was going but okay. I, I, I was going there for the solstice mm-hmm. so I could maximize sunlight <laughs> but um but they closed the islands I don't think they actually officially closed them but they effectively said that they were closed because destinations require maintenance based on the way that visitors experience them because visitors, you know, inherently have, you know, um, unintended, necess- um, un- unintended negative consequences of their, of their visitation oftenly. But, um, so they said that the islands were closed. They invited a hundred people to come to the Faroe Islands and then they had them stationed at different areas that were kind of high use areas of the, of the country, particularly trails. And those individuals that came ended up basically doing voluntourism and building platforms or building um, safety fences over kind of cliff sides. And so did so were the people that showed up, were they actually tourists? 
Yes. They yeah. were. And just really quick, how we define tourist or visitor in Oregon, I'm not sure if it's a national um, definition, but certainly in Oregon, is someone that's traveling 50 miles or more to get to a destination. So in the Faroe Islands, for this volunteerism event, I wonder, if did you ever find out the percentage of visitors that attended to be part of this volunteerism movement? I don't know if I got the actual numbers, but my understanding was that it was people that were flying into the Faroe Islands. So wow. there's only... 50,000 people in the Faroe Islands. I think I just learned it's 51,000. Oh. They've, they've had a population increase. I'll get to kind of the reasons why here in a second. But um, most of the people were, you know, this, that's not a lot of people there. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, there's people that were flying in on vacation that were getting a free trip that were able to spend their time giving back to the island. And um, when I was there, I did several, I mean, did quite a few hikes. Visit Faroe Islands is a wonderful organization that's got a lot of really good information on their website about um, ways to ways to hike um, around the 19 islands. And um, at least, I think I was telling you before, two or three of the kind of recreational experiences I did had been enhanced just months before by this volunteerism uh, PR campaign that they that they did, which I thought was great. And it was wonderful to see, you know, the, the legacy impacts that these visitors were having in the destination. Mm-hmm. And you had an opportunity as well to speak with some people from that visitor bureau or visitor yeah. association. Is that correct? Yeah, I was really fortunate. So when, you know, when the vice president of the marketing team sent out this kind of PR campaign, I immediately just went online and emailed their executive director and said, Hey, you know, my name's Andrew. I work for Travel Oregon. Um, really engage in a lot of work that's in this destination management space. And our, you know, vice president of marketing team sent out this campaign. I, I'm actually going to be in the islands in a couple of weeks, and I'd love to meet with you. And um, Guri was very, very nice and responded mm-hmm. relatively quickly. And we scheduled a time for me to come and see them. So I kind of got to the islands. I was there for nine nights. I did a pretty large, exhausting hike for the first couple of days, and then got back, and then um, ended up. They ended up having a meeting with me for about an hour, and uh, it was great. I learned that basically uh, my again. I don't have my notes from this meeting in right, front of me, yeah. but my understanding was that they they kind of started in 2011 as this tourism entity to really start to look at ways to diversify um, their their economy. Most of the Faroe Islands economy is farmed salmon. You might be familiar with the Faroese Ad- Ad- Atlantic salmon. That's top dollar, really, really good salmon. Um, that's crazy. You can go around these kind of fjords and you see these big circles in the ocean in these kind of you know narrow kind of bay things and that's what 90% of their economy is. And, wow. but you know, the other 10%, I don't know everything what it is, but tourism represents a pretty good portion of, or is now represents a pretty good portion of that. But what they saw was that they were, a lot of Faroese people were leaving the country. They, they were starting to kind of see a, a destination that was population in a decline. But, you know, as I mentioned, they used to be 50,000. Um, now they're 51,000. And one of the reasons that they can attribute it is because of the growing reputation of the Faroe Islands as a tourism destination because of the work that Visit Faroe Islands has been able to pull off. And, you know, they fell into what was a, you know, good, good problem where they have a beautiful natural assets and they started to show the world what it looked like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, ultimately you look at, what's happening across the board is happening here in Oregon. If people see a really cool landscape on Instagram, they want to go to said landscape to take a picture with it that they can then show to their friends to be like, I made it here. You know, the, the selfie movement, if you will. And, um, a lot of the images of the Faroe Islands that were used to drive a lot more tourism to the area and then also increase kind of its reputation as a, as a destination, they started to see major visitor impacts happening 
on those geological sites that they were taking pictures of. Big lesson here is that, you know, that ecosystem is relatively fragile. It's a tundra. So it takes quite a while for that ground to actually be developed that you're standing on. It's crazy. I was doing all this hiking and I'm pretty afraid of heights, but you know, people can walk really close to the edges. Not that I recommend it because I, I wasn't doing it, but it's kind of like you're walking on a sponge. Wow. It's just really weird kind of, it's not grass like we have in Oregon. It's total, very, very spongy, but your kind of feet stick into it and kind of sink into it. Um, but you know, if you keep stepping on it, that goes away and it turns into just mud. Right. So these areas were having kind of that, that sort of impact. So, um, this was one of the reasons why they decided to make it known and say, we need to close the destination down. It has impacts. We want to be kind of maintaining it. And we want to invite you, our visitor to help, you know, put boardwalks on these areas so that we can continue to get people to enjoy the visitor experience here, but not, you know, let the unintended negative impacts of tourism that happen from just natural wear and tear in a destination from visitation, um, basically just be uh, a negative factor on the destination's visitor experience. Yeah, that's interesting. That that story makes me think of a couple things. And one is it's it's really cool to see how you have an area where a lot of people are leaving. And then as it gets this really great reputation with the outside world or with visitors that are just more pride instilled than locals, maybe the younger locals that are leaving mm-hmm. to stay. And that's yeah. led to the population growth. And mm-hmm. I think that's really similar to a lot of our rural towns in the United States. I'm just thinking of Oregon, some of the rural towns where people think they need to go to Portland, Oregon, or they need to get out and go to a more important big city. But then as tourism comes, people are like, whoa, where I live is where people vacation. Like it gives them that pride to yeah. stay there, which... I think is important, and I think when I talk to older generations in rural towns, you know, they they talk with pride about their grandkids who have moved away and their kids that have moved away, but then how will we keep the population in these rural areas? So that is very cool to hear. And the second thing is that it was so great that it started leading to problems, which is what I think a lot of towns on, you know, on the coastline of the United States also deal with, but it kind of required a creative solution, and I'm guessing a really risky solution by having that PR campaign. And although the Faroe Islands is smaller, but I could just see that happening and all marketing entities for certain towns being like, no, yeah. we, we can't tell people not, not to, to come. come. Yeah. Like our job is to invite people to come. So I don't know if you had a chance to talk to them at all about any backlash. Was there anybody that was against that PR campaign? Oh, I, I don't think that anybody gave them any backlash. I mean, they may have heard some, but that's not kind of the way that it was described to me. I think that, you know, they've, they've made a point to kind of have some of these kind of cheeky, cheeky campaigns. They, um, prior to this campaign, um, the, the one that I mentioned, they did one called like sheep view or sheep camera where it was, <laughs> they put cameras on sheep and they were like posted, a GoPro or something. Yeah, like a GoPro <laughs> on a sheep. And they're like, come to Fair Islands. We have sheep and this is what it looks like here. Wow. So, you know, they've done a good job of kind of, you know, having their corporate brand kind of be in this space to begin with. So I think it's given them the flexibility to, um, be able to come out and say that don't come to the Faroe Islands this week unless you're one of the people that's going to come here to help help maintain the visitor experience. Yeah, that's a wonderful example. And um, I think, too, I, I was going to mention this earlier, that it's interesting with these roles that we have in destination management that now when we travel places, we have that lens and we're looking at how other destinations, especially those with coastlines, are um, are kind of dealing with their tourist issues. So it's fun to hear some of your take backs from that. 
Um, another interesting example that you had was, I don't know when, maybe a couple years ago. I think it was 2015. In 2015, yeah. you went to the, you hiked the West Coast Trail on Vancouver Island. Yeah. And you're mentioning there were some pretty um, creative visitor management solutions going on over there as well. Yeah, you know, I think it's a, a really big topic for us right now in Oregon, and it's not just Oregon, but obviously that's where I'm having conversations is, you know, signature trail concepts or, you know, world-class outdoor recreation assets, typically with, you know, multi-day um, hiking ad- adventures. And I'll just say that, you know, there was, I think we, I did four 50 mile hikes internationally within like a five year period of time around, you know, the 2012 to 2018. Were they leading you to hot springs? Or? They were leading me to oh, hot they springs. Were? Yeah, <laughs> man. <laughs> Excellent. There's yeah, a new campaign exactly. idea. Hot springs for Andrew Grossman. Okay. Tours. Yeah. But, um, so West coast trail was one. I, I went to hot springs in Tofino before I did the West coast <laughs> okay. trail. So it worked out. But, um, but yeah, I think it's, Basically, from my experience, the most best example of a well-managed trail system where there is a date, I believe it's in February, actually, um, every year that they release um, permits for for the West Coast Trail. And it's, it changes from year to year, but basically it's, 20, there's a, it's a 50-mile hike, effectively, from kind of the south to the north of a national park in on the west coast of Vancouver Island, West Coast Trail. And 25 people are let in on the south side, 25 people are let in on the north side, and then I think five people can come in through the river in the middle each day. So it's effectively, and maybe the, now it's 75 people, but it's somewhere between 50 and 75 people a day mm-hmm. are allowed to enter the trail that you can buy a permit for. So you got to do the old wake up at 8 a.m., refresh, 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 type in your name and get a permit. So it's kind I, of like a lottery system. Yeah. yeah. No, it's not. Yeah, it's just more like a rapid one day only get a permit okay. so I ended up going by myself um, but it's not cheap I think it's you know I think the whole trip for me was about $1,500 to do a 50 mile hike in Vancouver Island where you know arguably I could have just driven up to uh, the Olympic National Park mm-hmm. and done a 50 mile hike in a very similar ecosystem but the the x factor or the difference in this one is that just how well managed it is so um there's a lot of kind of safety information on their website. They give, they're very clear about the, the, the not dangers, but you know, the potential dangers and also just how frankly hard this is. It's a, the history of this trail is that it was like known as the you know graveyard of the Pacific, this part of the West coast of Vancouver Island. And I think there's 19 shipwrecks that are off that you like hike past as you're going on this hike. So the big, I think it was called the Valencia, which is a like Titanic size. So it was a hundred people <laughs> like, like um, cruise ship okay. capsized. A lot of people lost their lives at the early 1900s. So that's like, that was the biggest shipwreck that was there. But this trail was effectively the, the escape route that if when these boats crashed in this part of the Pacific, people would get to shore. And there was this historical trail that you could get back to civilization from. That was not easy, but it was why this trail existed. So at some point in time, Parks Canada um, converted this into a recreational asset that's, you know, this it's underneath this management plan where permits are issued. There's a lot of safety information. There's something like 77 ladders. There's two swing bridges and maybe five cable cars across. Um, and that's probably about one third of it, I guess, one quarter of it is boardwalked. 
So it's a lot of wood that's down there that's in a constant state of kind of rotting. Right. You can do the hike. Um, there's a trail that goes the entire time that's on land that, again, is mostly boardwalked and also with bridges and ladders up and down these valleys. And then there's also you can hike on the beach and they give you uh, in a second. So um, ultimately, I got to Victoria. I there was a visitor transportation system that was set up where I got picked up outside my hostel mm -hmm. and driven to basically the park headquarters on the south side and I did south and north. There was a I think a two hour orientation in which we were told everything we needed to know about the experience. They gave us tide charts. And who led the orientation? It was, it was the Parks Canada the parks. people. Okay. Um, and they you know they they gave us tide charts and said here's a map. If the tide, if depending on where the tide is, you can and can't do these sections of beach because you're actually going through rocks that at high tide you can't go through. Okay. So yeah. you need to be able to plan this out, but they tell you how to do this. They also give you a number for a um, emergency system, basically search and rescue. Although you could get, I could dial 911 with my American phone, given that we were so close to Washington State. Oh. They have their own dedicated search and rescue that's funded by the permit fees that go into actually getting to the trail system as well as those permit fees goes to maintaining that um, kind of the trail infrastructure. So you look at it, basically, you've got a limited amount of people that can, that can go on every day. You've got a lot of um, recreational infrastructure that needs to be maintained. You've got a dedicated search and rescue system. There's a ferry system that takes you from across the river at one point. That's um, There's part of the First Nations um, own parts of this trail, and they've got um, kind of glamping available as well as the cookie crab dinners. Mm -hmm. um, but it is an incredible, incredible asset for the, for the Canadian um, people and jealous we don't have something like this in Oregon. Yeah, and you can tell there's been a lot of planning that went into it from the visitor transportation part of that, mm -hmm. which is often a big challenge. You know, it's just getting people around so there's not a lot yeah. of congestion. And then as well as what I really like is them providing the tools for you to have a successful trip and also treat the natural resources the way they need to be treated. Mm -hmm. And you said this earlier when we were talking about the Faroe Islands is, you know, that visitors have this, these unintended negative consequences. And I would say, and I don't know if you agree or not, that a lot of times they're unintended because they don't have the information to do it correctly. Mm -hmm. So I love that you had an orientation and I don't know if people are rolling their eyes about going to the orientation, but that way, you know, like you cannot go through these rocks because waves will be crashing against yeah. it. Like that is something that would be interesting to look at, I think, for the Oregon coast as well. Yeah. I mean, there's actually, it was my first day and I was getting a little bit too aggressive, potentially is maybe the word to put it. And I was like, going, I was like, I'll go to the beach. I got to get to this one area that they told me I got to get to by a certain part. Cut it pretty close. I had to take my backpack off and hold it in my hand and walk like above waist deep in the water as waves are crashing me to throw my backpack on a rock and get in. So, you know, I, even, you know, I mean, that's a good example of, you know, just what was happening. But yeah, I mean, visitors only know what you show and tell them. And if you don't tell them or show them how to, you know, be responsible or understand cultural norms in your destination, although you might anticipate that they know it, you know, they're not mind readers. And it's our responsibility as destination managers to inform people about, potential dangers of their activities, potential impacts from their activities, or also things that they might know that they could be doing to, you know, have a better time. And the challenge in that, and there's, there is no um, easy solution or answer to this, but it's doing so in a way that's effective and kind of to the points, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes you get too much information to people and it's overwhelming. They don't listen. Yeah. You put it on a sign, they won't read it. So that's something that we'll be looking at in this podcast as well. I don't know if we have time to dive into it today, but that is definitely an interesting point 
that a lot of these visitor impacts that we see as citizens or in whatever agency that we're all working in, we see the negative impacts from tourism all the time. So definitely a good point. So those were two interesting examples, the Faroe Islands and the West Coast Trail and Vancouver Islands of destination management. And that's just kind of playing with ways that different, um, I guess in this case, countries are dealing with destinations. So Andrew and I are gonna do a little activity. I asked him to write down what his definition of destination management is. I wrote down mine. We work in the same state. Um, I'm guessing they're gonna be kind of similar, but it'll be interesting to see. So Andrew, you can read yours first. Yeah, sure. And I'll just say too that this is a fun exercise, Erica, because there is no one definition for destination management. Um, you know, I was I was asked by Travel Oregon to figure out what the international definition was at one point and couldn't come up with one that was universally agreed to and um, contacted several agencies and, you know, so we'll see how we go. But <laughs> mine is destination management inspires or destination management organizations. So mm-hmm. I took it from a kind of entity level approach, but... Destination management organizations inspire travel to and within a destination, enhance visitor experience, protect natural assets, and preserve residential quality of life. And the thinking there, too, even like above and beyond this one, is that ultimately, you know, I think traditional destination marketing is looked at and inspire travel to and within a place. But as we have seen our definition of stakeholder broaden over the years, I think we can begin to ask ourselves, like, what is the changes? What are the changes we want to see, or what are the things we want to protect within our destination? And we, as destination managers, have the ability to kind of lead, support, and advocate on, or advocate on uh, solutions to get us to where that change in that destination that we want to see is happening. Because prior to that, it was more we have product we want to sell to re- drive revenue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was great um, definition. I think mine's a little more of a politician, you know, where I don't really, it's a very broad and very vague, yeah. but essentially the same thing. I said, destination management is a process using multiple stakeholders to mitigate challenges and create solutions to a destination's future according to its own stakeholders. So I actually left out the word tourism. Um, Because all destinations are being managed or mismanaged, even if they don't have tourism. Mm -hmm. But I would say that tourism entities are almost always in coastal, you know, ecosystems, a really major stakeholder that are often left out of the table and out of the conversations. Um, I had a really interesting conversation with a land management agency one time, just in an off meeting. And I'd introduced myself and I said, hi, I'm Erica Sears. I'm the destination management coordinator for ACPA. And we had to go, go around a couple times. And then during a break, she came up to me and was like kind of hostile and said, what do you mean you're a destination management coordinator? I'm a destination management person because my agency manages land. And she said, we have all these visitor issues all the time and I manage it and I don't see you there. And it was kind of like, first of all, whoa. <laughs> um, but secondly, I, I told her, you know, in, in a really nice way, if you are a, especially a land management agency and you are trying to fix visitor solutions on the ground while they're happening, it's like putting a Band-Aid on an open wound 
and just continually putting more band-aids on more wounds instead of stopping the person that's inflicting the wounds. And I was like, so if you're having all these problems on your property, why wouldn't you talk to the person that's inviting people to go to your property and telling them how to, or how to not react? Um, so it's interesting to me, like destination management, does there always need to be a tourism entity? I'm not sure. I'm guessing yes, especially on coastal, coastal areas and communities. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, what we're, what we're kind of talking about here is that there are externalities related to basically everything. Mm-hmm. And in our world, it's tourism. So there's externalities that come from tourism that aren't being really factored into pricing structures of things or aren't being factored into, you know, budgets being made um, at kind of state, state, state levels. And, you know, you could say that, you know, positive externalities from tourism are that, or especially the outdoor recreation side of tourism, is that people have better health when they're, you know, recreating on public lands or they're, you know, engaging in a destination and, you know, using their bodies. Um, they, you know, they're seeing a reduction in the need for health care, you know, would be definitely a thing that we have data for. Um, the negative side of it is that, you know, if I'm a tour operator and I'm selling access to public land or I'm selling access to something and I'm bringing people somewhere, you know, the way that the margins are lined up is that I'm not quite accounting for the costs of the wear and tear in the destination that's there. I'm selling a trip that's rooted in kind of how I subcontract with the transportation provider, food I'm getting, the the accommodation, but how am I accounting for the natural wear and tear that would occur when somebody walks on things? Mm-hmm. It's just one example here. So, you know, what destination management looks at is like, how do we recognize or how do we manage these externalities? How do we provide, you know, more, more kind of muscle behind the positive ones so we can continue to, you know, use outdoor recreation as a way to increase kind of good, kind of good, good health. And then how do we also recognize that there are these, as we said, unintended Mm -hmm. impacts from visitation that, you know, we can collectively, you know, get, get behind. And ultimately if we can work in partnerships with people from a tourism level, you start to see us recognize that the value of the product that we have is maybe not being being totally accounted for right now. Yeah. So how do we get there? Yeah. And that's through just a lot of, at this point, a lot of processes and conversations and learning of lessons. Um, I'm going to just bring it back to one more example that I know that you have mm-hmm. that I think really showcases sort of the the reason that collaboration and interconnectivity should be happening. And that is with some work that you did in Chile. So would you like to just talk about that and kind of the non-traditional partnerships um, that were brought together? Yeah, exactly. So prior to joining Travel Oregon in 2016, um, I was director of partnerships for Sustainable Travel International, which was an international tourism, tourism development and management nonprofit that, um, primarily was kind of initially when it started, it was a carbon offset seller. Um, and we worked with, you know, most notably United Airlines, but also a lot of um, international outbound tour operators um, to basically recognize again the negative externalities from travel as it relates to the carbon footprint associated to, to tourism. And then inviting those entities and their travelers to get back to carbon reduction projects that would obviously mitigate the impacts from, from, from travel. 
Um, so during my time there, I was managing their carbon offset program and worked with United Airlines, again, most, most notably. Um, the whole idea is that you, you include donations to carbon mitigation projects into the costs of products and services. So we took this model and we said, great, well, we're giving back to kind of carbon projects. But, you know, ultimately, as we watch this industry grow, people want projects that are in the destination that they can support, that they're traveling to. And with carbon projects, you, took, you, you take this global level. So, you know, it's easier to kind of suspend that, suspend that need. But we started to hear from other destinations that they wanted, you know, to find ways to basically enable visitors to give their time, talent, and dollars back to the destination. And we took a lot of the same kind of programs and thinking we put behind running carbon offset programs from United Airlines and started to apply them into destinations through a term that was coined in 2011 as kind of travel philanthropy. And, um, you know, funny story, I got an email on info at sustainabletravel.com when I was managing it, and a gentleman named Drew Fink um, contacted us to say that he wanted to set up a travel philanthropy program in Torres del Paine National Park um, of Chile, which had the year before been voted the eighth wonder of the world. Wow, um, okay. I think in some, in some kind of travel magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, the landscape in Torres del Paine National Park is that it's one of the national parks in Chile. Um, it receives, I think, the first or second highest visitation of the national parks in Chile. And there's an issue where um, the park fees are spread evenly across all the parks for infrastructure. So the ones that receive the most visitation get the same annual kind of budget as the ones that receive the least amount of visitation. So there's not being, there's no statutory investment in managing these unintended negative impacts from visitation. So they were seeing as visitation was increasing, there was wear and tear on the destination that wasn't really being funded. Um, And you started to see reductions in the visitor experience there that were being kind of realized in, in a feedback So what they wanted to set up was a way to, again, enable visitors to contribute directly to management of the destination. So uh, Drew Fink was working at a um, nonprofit group that was down there called Fundacion Patagonia, which is managed by a tour operator, um, Hernan, um, and who was basically doing glacier glacier tours in in the park and also owned owned a hotel. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, they ended up, uh, Drew's family is a, is part of a family foundation, the Betsy and Jake, Betsy and Fink foundation. And, um, they ended up contracting with STI and we developed this program that was a travel philanthropy program called the Torres del Paine Legacy Fund, mm-hmm. where we went down to the destination or I went down to the destination and met with all the different hotels and the kind of land management agency, which was CONAF, which is effectively their kind of forest service down there. And we identified, um, kind of major major visitor impacts that we wanted to kind of see changed and potential projects that we could work on and also build awareness of this this foundation with with the local business community so that they could be an extended mouthpiece for it. Um, I think initially we thought we would get donations from the businesses, but to be honest with you, the way that the dynamic down there works is that a lot of the trips to Torres de Pine National Park are sold in the in the global north. So entities that are, you know, in the Northern Hemisphere or basically Australia, New Zealand. And those packages are subcontracted out to the local operators. So it didn't make a lot of sense to me to basically continue to ask these entities that are 
part of the sales pipeline and aren't really the major kind of margin owners because mm-hmm. their margins are being basically, you know, I'll use the term eaten, even though people might not agree with that across the board, but their margins get eaten by these entities that are selling it, but they're also co-marketing them. So there is a mutualistic benefit, okay. but it seemed more relevant to tackle those outbound operators that were sending people to the area. And the win-win was there too, because, you know, entities that sell trips to Torres Pine National Park in the global north, that's their major revenue, but they have no autonomy over what that destination looks like Mm -hmm. but they are entirely invested in it and when they're hearing their clientele say that that the w trail which is the 50 mile hike that i (laughs) one of those ones that i had done but (laughs) the 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 really iconic w trail is the key asset for that for that national park and you know people were experiencing you know issues with erosion on the trail and if i'm a tour operator in the u.s how do i resolve that you know? Right. So we started to say, you know, we're going to be down there. And we basically focused on three primary elements of cultural heritage, um, reforestation and trail restoration were kind of the three, three big priorities that we initially started to fund projects for with a major one being putting boardwalks up on the trails so that they could stop eroding and they would be safer and a better visitor experience. So we ended up working with um, outbound operators, one that comes to mind is Eclipse Travel based out of Sydney that basically were like, we've been waiting for this to happen um, and we'll start to include $50, I think it was $100 donations to the Torres del Paine Legacy Fund as part of all the packages they sold to the park. So we ended up setting up quite a few relationships like that, um, ended up down at uh, the Adventure Travel World Summit when it was in uh, Puerto Montt uh, in 2015, which is through the Adventure Travel Trade Association. And... Um, the people in the room, I raised 60 grand at that, at that event alone wow. for the, for the fund. And I think the first year we raised about $80,000 or so. A significant amount. Yeah. Yeah. To um, get started. For, for, for projects. And the beauty of it is it kind of comes into this kind of concept that I had about, you know, how do you, how do you engage a visitor and bring them into feeling a sense of shared ownership and to feel like they're one of the stakeholders that we had talked about, like kind of this broadening of, and you have multiple touch points along what is effectively the, the visitor life cycle that gets them to um, see the value of their donation and make themselves feel more connected to the place. So if you purchase, if you go on to Eclipse Travel's website, at least if you did, I haven't worked with them in several years, I've worked with Travel but I assume this is still happening. Mm-hmm. But um, if you go to their website and you purchase a trip to Patagonia or more specifically Torres del Paine National Park, um, they will include mention of, as part of your cost of your trip, we're going to be donating to the Torres del Paine Legacy Fund. There's information about what the fund is and some of the projects that are supported. When you get your um, kind of when you, when you make a purchase, it tells you that part of this $100 is going here, and then there's information that's provided in a confirmation email. When you arrive in the destination, you typically will fly into Punta Arena, and then you'll take a um, bus to Puerto Natales. If you're in Puerto Natales, um, there's you know only so many hotels that are in there, and because of the work that we did with the local partners, each of those hotels has a woodblock of the fun logo and people are kind of wearing Torres del Paine Legacy Fund hats. So, you know, those folks that bought a trip months ago in, in Sydney are then arriving to the area and seeing a reference to the fund, to the foundation that they were supporting. And they say, oh, what's this thing that we were, I've, I've heard yeah, about like this. I recognize that. I, I see recognize it again. this. Yeah. This is something that you see. And then it's, oh, well, this is a fun foundation that we support as a hotel. Um, you know, again, I, they're not making direct contributions, but they're help telling the story about how it's impacting the destination. And then from Puerto Natales, it's about a two and a half hour drive to the national park itself, where there are now boardwalks that are 
in the park that have been funded by visitors through this through this visitor um, d- d- donation mechanism that say brought to you by the Torres Pine Legacy Fund. So when they're on the actual asset that they purchased the experience on, they're ne- they're seeing again another level up. And then um, basically, if you stay at any of the lodging in the park, they're also partners too. So there's another reference there. Yeah. And then when you leave. Um, the Eclipse Travel when you come back will basically say thank you so much for traveling with us um, if you'd like to make another contribution because you see the value of it you can continue to get back to your destination and um, so that program is alive and well it's being currently managed by my former colleague at Sustainable Travel International and I think it's a really interesting example of how you brought local partners together to identify visitor impacts to basically decide what types of projects they wanted to see the change in the destination that they wanted to see happen you then looked at where the money was and where the money was coming from or kind of moving to, and you identified that you could basically create a value proposition that is like there's a negative economic externality that's not being realized in your mm-hmm. in your financial model, and we invite you to broaden the scope of your of the way that you price out your products and services to a destination with a portion of those products and services going to those projects that have been identified by the community. Yeah, it's incredible. I, I think there's. I mean, a ton, a ton of different examples in that one story that I love, but I think like what you just said, being able to kind of take yourself out of that immediate picture and be that person that's there and saying like, I see these negative impacts and I see this visitor and this is the problem here, but taking a step back and saying, well, where are these visitors coming from? Who is sending them? And at what point can we intercept them? I think is incredible. And then just the kind of stakeholders you have where it's not I'm a tourism entity, tourists are coming, tourists are having problems, it's my responsibility. You can really rely on private businesses and nonprofits and you know even international organizations to kind of contribute to this, this problem. Um, and then again, there's a million different things. But another one is just being able to identify a few problems or challenges and then focus on them and saying, what steps can we take to fix these, these challenges? And this is something that you and I have been doing in Oregon and saying also what challenges can we focus on that we can also see a change in mm-hmm. and see a success in, I think is also really important. So, yeah. um, well, those are wonderful examples. And I think we'll start wrapping up here. I guess just the last little thing I wanted to talk about with you, Andrew, is a conversation that we had a couple months ago. And we were talking about the work that we do in this destination management space and how oftentimes people don't see us or know what we're doing. And you made a joke that we're the people that are, you know, behind the stage, behind the curtain, we're doing all this work. And even if people can't see us, it's the work we're doing is important as long as the the product Mm -hmm. happens, as long as experience happens. Um, And just to take that step further, I was thinking about it. And I was like, yeah, we are. We're like on stage at a play. And you and I are pulling the ropes and the levees. And sometimes we're really good at it. And like the show is going perfect. Other times we make mistakes and like, one of us is flying up in the air and the sandbag is flying down. Um, but it's also important to see who else is behind the stage helping us run this really great show. And I think sometimes identifying the, the people that are in this metaphorical audience that um, are either booing from the audience or walking out, they're tired of this, but they should actually be behind the stage, behind the scene as well, helping us with that. Um do you think, and in my opinion, I'm like, everybody should be behind. We should all be working on this together. This is every industry. You know, we collaborate with fishing industry and timber. And um, is there anybody that shouldn't be responsible for managing a destination? Anything or anybody in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways, you know, there's 
there's a lot of different definitions for like sustainable travel, let's say, but one of the ones that, you know, really has kind of resonated with me for a long time is that you instill a sense of shared ownership of a destination so that everybody feels like, you know, they have access to it and are responsible for protecting it. So I think that, you know, based on that kind of thinking of a sense of shared ownership, I do think everybody needs to be, again, all the residents, all the actors, all of the people behind the scenes, they need to be thinking about how they can help maintain that sense of shared ownership and look back, at least my definition of inspire travel to and within, Mm -hmm. you know, enhance visitor experience, protect natural assets to preserve residential quality of life. I think they're all there. I think where, you know, if people aren't being productive in those conversations and are, you know, basically not, not being collaborative. I think those are probably the ones I can take a seat, but you know, you're going to find those actors in any, in any industry. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great. I think just off the top of my head, I would say sometimes the natural resources themselves shouldn't be responsible for tourism, whether that's the trail or, um, you know, the ocean, it's perhaps the organizations that are working to protect that should definitely be a player. Um, but I think that's just an interesting question and one I'll continue to explore. So, I will wrap it up. Thank you so much, Andrew Grossman from Travel Oregon, for being on the show today. Um, it has Thanks been a-, a lot, Erica Sears from Oregon Coast <laughs> Visitors Association. <laughs> I'm so happy to have you on and get the show started. Again, this is your host, Erica Sears, with the show Big Tourism, taking a look at our really complicated industry and the non-traditional partnerships, exciting case studies, and testimonies from communities that are dealing with new tourism trends um, on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Until next time.